everyone and welcome back to another episode of The Riff. Um, my name is Lauren and I'm a criminal solicitor here and I'm here today with Cameron. Cameron, how are you? Good, thank you, Lauren. How are you? Good, good. So we are back for round two today of the podcast regarding the Pell decision. Mm-hmm. So the last podcast we ran through the allegations, the facts and effectively went through everything that was before the court in terms of evidence. Mm -hmm. Yep, we did. This podcast today is more going to be talking about the legal issues, the legal procedure. And how the final court made its decision. Yeah, so how it came to be that the decision was appealed and as of today, Pell is now walking with no conviction. That's right. So... I think the first thing to touch on is what we went through last week with the evidence was there was the allegations that were made and from the from these allegations um the defense you know picked numerous holes in yes. these, in, in the evidence and at for the first trial uh, it was a trial by jury and Correct. the jury found that Pell was guilty. Yes. So there was a trial prior to the conviction. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, the first trial, the jury could not come to a verdict. Mm-hmm. So there was another trial, another jury was impaneled, and then there was a guilty finding on that trial. Yeah, so there was a guilty finding, and obviously uh, Pell's advice from his lawyers was to appeal it. Quite rightly. So they appealed it and the court that they appealed it to was the Supreme Court of Victoria. Correct. So it went to the Supreme Court of Victoria. Now that court had the same evidence and the same arguments that went to the high court to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. But we will primarily talk about the legal issues that were before the high court and how that was the de- the final decision because realistically that's what is in yeah. effect today. So so really it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has three judges that sit on the bench uh, and in this the, the Supreme Court judges went through the various evidence that was put forward and the verdict from this was two to one. Correct. Which was then appealed again by yes. Pell's uh, counsel to the High Court, which is the last court that they could possibly go to. The last in this court country. in the land. And then that's where we, we are right now. Yes. So when it went to the Supreme Court, uh, as you said, it was two to one. So that means that two judges out of the three upheld the verdict, which effectively means that they said, yes, the jury, the jury's decision stays and they dismiss the appeal. It's important here to note that there is some argument and the High Court does discuss it in its decision, but it's important to note both sides that on one reading, the Supreme Court was to determine whether it was open to the jury based on the evidence, whether a guilty verdict was available to them. So it's effectively saying that the Supreme Court was saying when they look at the evidence, is it open to the jury to find Pell guilty? And so the Supreme Court in that case, they go back and they look through what the jury's eyes were at that time so they look at what evidence was available to the jury which we've already spoken about and could they have possibly come to a decision based on that information whether or not he was guilty or not yes and whether it was open to the jury to find him guilty Mm -hmm. now there is some opposing decisions about that 
some opposing arguments realistically from Pell's counsel and they say that it wasn't the job of the Supreme Court to look at each piece of evidence individually and it wasn't their job to say whether or not a guilty verdict was open to them. It was about looking at the totality of evidence and seeing if it was available to them to find Pell guilty right. beyond a one, reasonable doubt. One key thing, and that, that's one of the key po- points from reading the Supreme Court decision here, Lauren, is that the prosecution was really focused on the evidence of this one key... The complainant, yeah. The yeah. complainant, that they didn't focus on any of this other evidence. Yes, so they looked at each piece of evidence individually and they said, looking at the complainant's evidence and then looking at each other person's evidence, it was open to the jury to find him guilty. What the defence or the appellant argues in this situation is, yes, I'm sure if you look at any individual piece of evidence, it will say one thing to the jury, but you have to look at it in totality because yeah. otherwise it's just a trial by complainant. Yeah, so, right. and, and I think we've got to stress here how much of an important legal argument this is because yes. trials by jury do not get overthrown because they're almost the basis of the legal uh, That's the criminal it. legal system here. So the Supreme Court in any situation and in any appeal of a jury trial is so risky if you're doing it on the basis of a jury's verdict. Mm. So when you appeal something to a higher court, you have to outline the basis on which you appeal. So you have to say why you think the decision is wrong. Is it that evidence wasn't allowed in or was a legal argument taken into account that shouldn't have been? Yep. And did that effectively change the outcome? To simply say the jury didn't have the verdict available to them is huge. That's a massive claim. Because you're saying that 12 people who represent the society that we live in just got it wrong. Mm. It being the basis of our legal system, the whole thing of a jury of your peers and a jury representing the community, it's the whole concept of the community coming and making a judgment about an allegation. And to go to the Supreme Court and say the entirety of the basis of our legal system got it wrong sets a huge precedent yeah so i can understand how the supreme court would be very hesitant and then also especially considering the intensity surrounding this matter yeah and when you read the decision here you can somewhat read between the lines where it almost looked like whatever decision they were going to make it was going to go to the high court (laughs) yes so some legal commentary says that the supreme court was never going to make this decision because it was a decision that really had to be made by the high court some legal commentary also says that the decision was appealed because Pell finally got a counsel from New South Wales rather than having someone from any other state. Mm-hmm. But that's just New South Wales pride. So the other aspect that's important in terms of the legal concept here is that the burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt was really tested in terms of the appeal. So whether or not the prosecution brought this case and proved beyond a reasonable doubt and We'll now sort of take it to the high court because obviously the Supreme Court upheld the verdict. The one dissenting judge realistically was correct and they said that there was enough here to challenge reasonable doubt. There was enough here to raise doubt, even if you're looking at the evidence individually. Because Mm. if you take someone's evidence like Portelli, who was the person who says he was with Pell and effectively provides an alibi, which I will touch on in detail... um, if you're just looking at his evidence, there's doubt. Yeah. If we take the, the matter now to the High Court. So we, get, we go to the High Court. That's where we are now. And there's a few things that the kind of court focused on. Correct. In its decision here. Now, like you just said, one of these key things was the alibi, which was Portelli. 
Yes. Portelli saying, I would have known that he was with me at all times and if he left me, I would have remembered it because it was so rare that he ever left me. Yes. So the important part of this is if the defense brings an alibi, now alibi effectively being the concept of I couldn't have done it because I was elsewhere, the defense has to provide evidence surrounding that alibi. So a defendant can't simply say, it wasn't me, I wasn't there. You have to then say, because John Smith can say that I was with them. Which is who Portelli is in this case. Yes. So if a defense provides that position and says, I'm going to rely upon alibi evidence, i.e. Portelli, once that evidence is brought, the prosecution then has a duty and must disprove the alibi. Which makes sense when you think about it from a legal standpoint here. You've brought this forward. The prosecution's going to say, well, no, it's not true for these reasons. And continue with the allegation. Now so, t- if Tell me, Lauren, did that happen in this case? It was completely unchallenged. And that is what is huge. So it was not available for the prosecution to simply unchallenge that evidence because it is their duty to disprove the alibi. Yeah, which it just seems as though they just didn't do. They just left it and they just effectively relied upon the complainant's evidence. What's really important here, and if it's one thing that I can have a listener take away, is that the structure of this appeal was outlining that the prosecution relied solely on the complainant's evidence and took an entirely passive approach to the rest of the evidence. And that is that's not okay in our justice system because mm. the burden of proof is on the pr- prosecution. And the difficulty is that most people say, well, if this person did it, then you know, they deserve everything they get, but that's always the position until somebody is faced with an accusation. That's right. And they want the burden of proof to be on the person making the accusation. It's the foundations of our legal system. Yes, and it's what makes, you know, crime TV so good because it's beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, until you're really faced with the legal system, it's difficult to explain how much of a high hurdle that is. But beyond a reasonable doubt means that if evidence is brought that shows that it could be a different version of events than what the complainant brought, then the jury cannot reasonably convict. You you can't be guilty. Exactly. That's a key thing that the High Court focused on was the alibi. They simply said that the prosecution could not lead from the complainant's evidence and take a passive approach. Really, what seems to have happened in this case was that the initial, um, in the initial first case, was that the complainant's evidence evidence the prosecution said this guy says this and then it's gone back to the defense and they've gone no it kind of happened for this 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 and this challenged every other challenge everything and the prosecution's come back and were being like well it did yeah the prosecution (laughs) basically said well this guy said it's a very passive approach to it's so passive in a situation where The prosecution has the job to lead. The prosecution has the job to run the crusade. And the defense generally takes a position of, well, I will challenge the prosecution evidence, lead whatever evidence I have to, i.e. an alibi. And then the prosecution's job is to bring it home. Hmm. That's right. And then that's for the jury to worry about. That's it. And what's very interesting here as well going through this high court case is that the initial judge who heard this case when they took the jury aside said to them, You need to look at this case as a whole. That's it. (laughs) So what generally happens, uh, because a jury is is there to assess the evidence. The Mm. judge that is there is 
there to ensure that any and all evidence that gets put before the jury is legally sound. So that's looking at our rules of evidence such as hearsay, opinion, expert, all of that. There is a wealth of rules in terms of leading a trial and the burden is at its highest when it comes to criminal matters as it should be because realistically you're talking about your liberty. So at the end of a hearing... The judge will then provide directions to the jury and that's talking about providing certain weight to certain evidence or how they have to interpret something or how if they look at a piece of evidence, if it's got some sort of issue, what they're to do. And I think we've got to specify here that it's not the judge telling them what decision to make. No. It's just saying you need to consider this evidence factors. in this light. Yeah. So certain things such as uh, the, the very basic one that everybody can understand is a direction to disregard. So if a certain piece of evidence has come out in hearing from a witness from something and it's objectionable. So say they don't have the ability to give that evidence because it's opinion or hearsay or tendency or whatever it may be. A judge, rather than dismissing the jury and impaneling a new one, which can be very costly, very time-consuming, and the judge can simply say, you're to disregard that. And at the end of the hearing, if it is important to do so, they can simply say, you are to disregard any evidence and you are not to rely on any of any evidence that we've said you cannot rely on. In this matter, the judge gave a direction that was really important and really was heavily relied upon in terms of an appeal, and correctly so. So the direction that was given by the judge in this matter is that the jury could not solely look at the manner of wit in which evidence was given. So that's looking at if someone's a poor witness because they're a poor historian, which in one of, in one of these witnesses, Potter was 86, didn't have the best memory recollection. He apparently wasn't that clear of a speaker um, because he was 86. The court said you can't take his evidence as less because he's 86 and he can't speak clearly or he was maybe mumbling a bit than someone who is like you and I and can speak very clearly and is a lawyer. You've got to look at it all. You've got to look at it all and you've got to look at it in the context of, well, what does that evidence tell me in totality? What the concern was, was that the jury relied heavily upon the complainant's evidence. Now, According to what I can read, he was a brilliant witness, gave very strong evidence and was very steadfast in his position with some concessions in some areas, but he was a very strong complainant. What the concern is, is that the jury took this complainant's evidence and it was heavily led by the prosecution, took the complainant's evidence and just said, that's a conviction. And you cannot simply give a conviction based on wonderfully performed evidence if that's, i can put it that way that's not how our system works no it's we don't do trials by complainants we don't do trial by allegation and have the defendant respond to an allegation yeah. one other very important aspect of this matter was that the defense was really at a significant forensic disadvantage yeah the whole concept of being able to face your accuser mm-hmm. um or in this matter face your denier there was as you may recall from the first podcast there was another alleged victim the complainant made the allegation and said that there was two people who were sexually assaulted the second alleged victim denied the allegation said it didn't happen yeah he then passed away before the beginning of the hearing yeah so he couldn't be 
called for evidence, obviously. He couldn't be called to give evidence. Now, that's a significant forensic disadvantage because you should be able to put the clear evidence of what one, the other person in the room said occurred. If two people say it's happened, it's clearer than one person, isn't it? That's it. And more importantly, if one person said that it didn't happen, that's very significant. (laughs) It's very contradictory, isn't it? It is. Yeah. And then the other very important thing is that the job then for the prosecution was that it was their job to prove that the denial of this alleged victim was false. So it was their job to prove that he was simply saying, no, it didn't happen, and he was lying when he said that. Yeah. So there was, by the reading of it, a bit of a flip of the job there in that it appeared that the job was on the defence to prove that he said, no, it didn't happen, and that he was telling the truth. Yeah rather than the job being the other way around, which it should be because that's how the structure of our criminal justice system works. And so taking all of that into account... This was a trial by accusation. And it realistically was one where they did not prove beyond a reasonable doubt. Which is why most significantly, and this is probably my biggest takeaway out of this case, is that the judgment was seven high court judges all in the favour of... Pell. That's it. The High Court making a decision 7-0 is unheard of no. to solicitors. You think of every big case that you know that's been to the High Court, the majority of them, if not all of them, would not have been 7-0. It is insane to get leave to be before the court because yeah. prior to being before the High Court and having a hearing before the High Court, you have to make an application for leave to appeal. So it's special leave. Yeah. You Because effectively you're saying every court in the land got it wrong and I need yeah. you to fix it. Yeah. So as an idea of how insane it is that it got there in the first place, there were 507 special leave applications in 2019 that were refused and only 43 were granted. Yeah. So we're talking about less than 10%. Yeah. That were allowed to go before the court. And this is something to take into account here. When you're saying less than 10%, I don't know, there seems to be a focus, you know, through the media and things like that, that, you know, you just go to the high court if you want to. It's, it's not the case. You no. don't just go to the high court. It is a very tedious... Lengthy, lengthy process. process yeah. And expensive. Oh. It's approximately $15,000 to file the application just to get there. And you think about all the there. legal fees that you've already gone through to get to that stage as well. We'd be talking hundreds, hundreds of thousand dollars. Once a matter... You'll have, make an application for special leave to go before the high court. Once that gets determined... You then have to go through the process of providing submissions, chronology, evidence to the court saying why your matter should be determined in favour of you. Now, we're talking about less than 10% that get before the high court for a hearing. Yeah, you don't even make it to a judge. You're not even before the court. No, no, No. not even before the court. But then the number of people, so we've got these 43 cases that are before the court in 2019. Yep. And then from there, how many of them were 7-0? None. None. So zero cases in 2019 were 7-0. Zero cases. That just says the gravity of a 7-0 decision. That's it. I mean, you think of historical cases that have been before the High Court. Marbo wasn't 7-0. No. Marbo, which is considered one of the most... The biggest cases in Australian history. Almost. It's the biggest case in Australian history that everybody generally thinks of. you know of Marbo. Yeah, you'll still know of Marbo. So that wasn't 7-0. For this matter to go before the High Court, to get all the way up there, 
and then the High Court to say that the method that underpins our criminal justice system got it wrong and all seven of them to make that decision, that is overwhelming. And when you dissect the actual facts about the case, it's surprising that it took this long to get to that decision on a legal basis. But even when it got to the High Court, the decision was made pretty quickly. It was made very quickly. (laughs) The the High Court releases a summary effectively of what the decision is, and especially because of the notoriety of this case and how big it was. The court will release a summary saying this is the best, this is the crux of what we have said. And the last line of this says, with respect to each of the applicant's conviction, there was consistently with the words that the court used and they reference a case here, a significant possibility that an innocent person has been convicted because the evidence did not establish guilt to the requisite standard of proof. So they basically said they did not have the evidence to convict. And all seven of them said it. Which is astounding. It is absolutely astounding. And I think that's one of the major takeaways from here is that the media attention that we're seeing at the moment isn't focusing on that. It's focusing, obviously, on Pell and the issues that he has. But from a legal perspective perspective here, it's the high court saying back to the prosecution, you didn't have enough. You didn't have the evidence. You, You shouldn't have brought this forward. It's from my perspective as a criminal practitioner, I'm surprised that it got to a trial the allegations just weren't substantiated now that's a perspective of a criminal solicitor who has spent a lot of time (laughs) going through this going through this matter and the evidence no small case it is no small case it is a lot of reading now there is a lot of media information that is quite frankly incorrect yeah um having looked at a lot of news articles to accompany this to see if there was any quotes or anything like that some news reference some news articles have simply said the overwhelming evidence and the forensic evidence in support and there was really complainants evidence only look as as you can see here take away any opinions that anybody has of pell he's just called mr x for the time being here that's it and you put this evidence and these allegations together you can see how the high courts come to the decision that they've come to. That's it. Seven nil. And not and, and for not two of them to come to that, for seven of them to come to that. And these are the top judges in Australia. We're these talking, are the top you, of the top. You, you can't get above this. So for seven of them to agree this, it's, it's big. It's a big decision. And I think realistically in this day and age, it's important where there is so much stigma surrounding these types of allegations, it's important to look at the fact that seven of the highest judges in Australia have said there just isn't the evidence. Which I think the key thing to take away here is that when these cases are brought forward in the future, the prosecution is going to be a lot more... Diligent. Yeah, diligent. Get as much as they can. That's it. Which... In saying that, that's not a bad thing because you and know, it that, should that, be. Then that's the way the system's supposed to it work. It means that our criminal standard, our criminal standards are kept high. Yeah. The burden of proof is kept high. Yeah. Which, if these allegations were made against anybody listening, they would want yeah, the standard to right. be high. Nobody wants an innocent person to go to jail. That's it. So I think we've pretty much covered everything. So, um, and I, I just want to re- reiterate here, Lauren, that 
everything that we've said here, we are not taking any opinion. We are not in favor of anyone. No, whatsoever. this is simply a matter of was, going, going through, through, through through the facts, the facts, the evidence, the and the legal arguments that have been made and determined. So I hope that everybody out there now understands this case a bit more and can see why we think there should be a different kind of focus. To, That's it. It should be a different case. and a different report about the case. So thank you all very much for listening. Yeah, um, we hope for two weeks with us, which is great. That's <laughs> it. That's it. And thank you for uh, tuning in. If you like our podcast, please provide a review on whatever app you use. And if you want to head on over to our Facebook page and give us a like, Get on a there, review. Yeah. If you have any recommendations for a podcast or anything you want to learn about, please write in. Um, and as always, thank you for tuning in. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We will speak to you soon. Thanks. Bye. bye.